Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Close your eyes. I'm going to paint you a picture with words. Okay. I'm driving down the highway at highway speeds. I've just gone to a drive-in, and I've gotten a soda in a styrofoam cup. And it's the wrong soda. Oh, you hate that. I know. So I hurl the soda out the window, being a jerk, and it hits a car going in the opposite direction, also at highway speeds, pierces the windshield right in front of the driver, and kills her. (gasps) A styrofoam cup does that? I know. That is crazy. Delicious Mythbusters non-trademark slush drink. Icy, fruity, blue, and potentially lethal. Use with caution. Extreme caution. Because throwing one from your car at 60 miles per hour does this. Remember, we do it so you don't have to. The Buster and I hope this provides a lesson in caution to anyone who would mishandle a slush drink. Not only is the primary damage to the windshield absolutely shocking, but the secondary damage, the effect of the driver not being able to see through the spider webbing on the windshield would very likely cause a really bad accident. I would not have called that much damage. That is shocking. It doesn't get much worse. Yeah, oh, it gets worse, yeah. Uh, Before there was Mythbusters, uh, there was me. I can tell you all about that physics right there. I'll remember it like it was yesterday. It was 1972, and it was the blizzard that shut down and paralyzed San Antonio, Texas. Two inches of snow covered the city. We had four-inch drifts. Uh, We were afraid for our lives, but we managed, as the mayor shut down the entire city and made it somewhat safe for pedestrians, me and my bag of friends, we we met at the elementary school, and and it was beautiful because we had 12 hours of of a slush fight, you know? They weren't really snowballs, they were slush balls. And, and we, had, we had a run of our neighborhood because there were no cars on the street. And we would just walk down the center of the streets like we owned the place. And there was nothing but just childish laughter going on, you know, the whole day until Dan Cook Jr., uh, a high school kid, had his, what, I think it was a 1968 Chevy Nova, big V8 engine with glass packs. He's, he was at the top of the hill revving his engine. He saw us. He saw us. And he was revving on purpose. And so, of course, we all took our positions on the side of the road and behind bushes and trees. And as he came charging down our gauntlet, we pelted him with about, I don't know, 15, 20 of these slush balls. And we were pretty giggly about it until he hit his brake and spun his car around and his windshield was just shattered, just like that. You don't have to be at highway speeds, apparently. So one of the guys got, was caught and, and interrogated by uh, Dan Cook Jr., and he spilled all the names. So I had to tell my dad later on, and he, was, he has a degree in engineering, and so he thinks a lot in the context of physics. And so he, he said, Matt, what were you thinking exactly with this car coming down the street? What did you think would happen? I said, I didn't think this would happen. You know, I mean, uh, he said, so he said, look, Matt, Matt, if a car is going 35 miles an hour and you hit it with a slush ball, I mean, it's, it's, it's the same as the slush ball hitting the windshield at 35. It's physics. The windshield never had a chance. I said, well, I, I, don't, I don't understand that. I don't understand. He says, it doesn't matter if you understand it or not. That's the way it is. When do you take physics, Matt? I don't know, Dad. Maybe in high school. Well, three years later, you should have seen him because 
I kind of did the same thing again, but differently. Uh, uh, my brother's friend, who was a bully to me, was in my front yard, my front yard. And he was talking to my brother, and so I called a friend up who had a driver's license, and we filled a water balloon about that big, about the size of a melon. Um, actually, uh, I think bowling ball would better be a better illustration, but it's about the size of a bowling ball. And we came over our hill, came off our suspension, right, then landed, and then we rolled down the window, and I yelled the guy's name as I released this water balloon on his car. And then we all kind of turned around in, in, in our car and, and watched it hit. And when he hit that car, we saw water and glass and chrome and metal flake paint go everywhere. And so my buddies pulled over, led me out of the car to walk home to my father. And the conversation was much shorter this time. I said, uh, physics, Dad? He said, physics. When do you take physics? I said, I think I'm taking that next year. So I did that so that you wouldn't have to. Just like Mythbusters said, I did that so that you wouldn't have to. Physics. Here's the point of the story, which is an appropriate introduction today. Um, you know how sometimes a policeman or a judge might tell you ignorance of the law is no excuse? Well, it turns out that ignorance of the laws of nature is no excuse. I didn't know that, this, these laws of physics, but it didn't matter. Ignorance of the laws of nature it's no excuse. And what we're going to look at here is spiritual laws. We're, Paul's going to tell us about spiritual laws, and he's going to use physical laws to help us understand spiritual laws because we are spiritually learning impaired, and, and for good reason, right? I mean, we're physical beings, and, and the spiritual world we can't know about through, you know, our touch and sight and taste and smell and those sorts of things, right? And so it, it's difficult for us to actually know what the hard and fast rules are. Well, so the Bible is full of illustrations that connect the physical world with the spiritual world. And, and some great authors, going back to maybe even Augustine, but certainly Chesterton and Lewis, have said, wait a minute, it's, it's not just using analogies like trying to explain um, the power of God and the power of God is like a supernova, right? It's, it's, it's more intentional than that. These authors would say that the way that God created the universe was actually so that we would understand the laws of the spiritual world. In other words, he set up the laws of the physical world knowing that we'd be wondering about the laws of the spiritual world and we'd need to make a connection since we're physical beings and so we would be able to understand those things. So again, Lewis um, in one of his books mentions the seasons of the year and he would, he would maybe imply or actually uh, exhort us to consider this, that the, that the seasons of the year were actually planned for spiritual purposes that we would, we would look at winter, for example, that, you know, just, just long and cold and dark and dreary season that happens every year, right? And, and when you look at winter, agriculturally speaking, you, you assume there's nothing but death. There's no sign of life. And you, you give up and you have emotional responses, right? The, the hopeless and pointless and we should plow everything up and, or cut some things down. And then what's the, the following season? Spring, right? Spring has sprung, and, and, and it, is, it is the most right, beautiful and uh, brilliant expression of colors in of the four seasons of the year. And, and the point is, Lewis is making for us, and I think what's, what we find in our Bibles is, is it right? I mean, that's, a, that's like the spiritual world. When, our, when we maybe not just bury any seeds and, 
and we think they're dead, when we lower a coffin into the ground, our soul is buried. This is spiritual things. Then it too could possibly have a spring experience, like a resurrection. And so we have this intuitive hope, right? We have this intuitive hope because of our whole lives experiencing this winter-spring experience that there could quite possibly be a resurrection. And so when Jesus shows up and he says, oh, yeah, there's a resurrection, I am the resurrection and the life. Then, then we say, right, I've been expecting something like that. Point is, we have a difficult time understanding spiritual rules and the laws of the universe, and God has set up the physical world so that we can better expect things from our spiritual lives. So if we study the physical world, maybe we'll learn some things about the spiritual world. Now, today we're going to look at how Paul does that in um, the book of Galatians. Like Mike said, we're in our last week, so let me just tell you, um, Galatians is a letter written to a group of churches that I would say is the most succinct and essential description of the books of the Bible, uh, essential description and illustration of what the gospel is. The gospel means good news, and he says there's only one pure gospel. If you deviate from it in any way, you'd be accursed. It's a very colorful book, because Paul wants to make sure that we understand this and the consequences of believing otherwise. The gospel is this, and this is the context of our, of our learning time today, right? The, the application. The, the gospel is this, the good news is this, that you are made right with God only by, right, faith alone, believing alone in the gift that is given to us, and the gift is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, By his death, he pays for our sins. By his resurrection, we inherit his righteousness. And it's by Jesus Christ alone, no other. It is by faith alone, not faith plus works. It is in this gift alone of Jesus doing the death and resurrection. And it is Jesus alone. There's nobody else that he can even compete with this. That's what the gospel is. Now, the context of what we're going to learn today is understanding that, right? Those were the first chapters of this book, Galatians. And what happens with people when they hear that that they are made perfect with God because of what they receive from Jesus Christ, not from what they, what they do, they run in two absolutely uh, contradictory t- directions. I mean, they run wild in two different ways. Uh, one way that people run wild is they go over here and they, they, take, they realize for good. They, they will go anywhere and do anything, and they do crazy things for God, not so that he will love them or forgive them, but because of. Fueled by gratitude and love, they go pursue sainthood, and they are unshackled by, right, by moralism and, and, and their passions for the most part, and they, they just they do wonderful things for the glory of God, and, and they pursue this, this righteousness. And they, and they bring this grace into other people's lives as well. They spread the grace that they received in their own life. That's one direction that they run. The other direction that people run is, is actually in this direction. There's like these parallel paths. One is, is, is what is called the flesh. This road, this whole road is called the flesh. And in Galatians, it has two applications. Let me review there. Okay, one is um, basic self-centered pleasure-seeking, right? Kind of some hedonism, right? You, you, you hear, wait a minute. So, Jesus paid all my sins? Got it. Okay, now I'm going to run up this credit card bill, and I'm, I'm going to get away. I'm going to try to get away with as much as I can. That's one, that's one application people go with. The other one is, is if you, in Galatians, flesh also means self-righteous moralism, where, where they feel like they can obligate God 
and, and their friends and family and, every, and all their relationships with this idea that they have standards and they're, and they're, and they're going to be moral and they're going to do these things so that they can, again, obligate God and expect certain things from him. And then they take that out on their relationships as well. Just like these people take grace out on their relationships, these take, people take self-righteous moralism out on relationships as well. What, what they began in the spirit, maybe they're trying to perfect with this flesh that he's talking about. So again, that's, that's how people apply the gospel, right? By going in, into this pursuit of righteousness and the pursuit of flesh. Now, what Paul's going to do in a very efficient way, if nothing else, is he's using sheer genius to take the physical world, and he's going to take this group over here, and he's going to say, look, you know, I want to encourage you to continue running this race in this direction, continue to do good. And this group, he's going to hopefully cause great fear and regret uh, for the people that are running this path of flesh, right? He's going to use, he's going to use the physical world to, to warn sinners that your sins will find you out, right? And the righteous runners, he's saying, look, there are rewards for this. And he's going to use, he's going to use Mother Nature to do both of those, all right? So look, let's look at the general overarching uh, principle here in chapter 6, verse 7. Paul says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person plants, he will also harvest. Whatever a person plants, he will also harvest. There's the mother nature part, right? So, but he says, let's look at some key words there. Do not be deceived. That word sometimes can be translated in some of your other translations you can find. Don't be stupid, right? Don't be naive. Don't be ignorant of this because ignorance is no excuse, right? God is not mocked. And the idea of mocking someone is when you uh, turn your nose up on there. Uh, in other words that are used, uh, God will not be sneered or ridiculed. Don't be ignorant or stupid. You cannot make God contemptuous in your life, right? Why? Because he's like this, you know, melancholy, angry-tempered Zeus that sits in his throne in the clouds, and he will hit you with bolts of lightning of judgment. Is that how he deals with this, people that mock him? No. Paul says, God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. He just says, he doesn't have to do that. He's set up the universe, and he says, what you plant, you harvest. And that should encourage this group of people, and that should bring fear to this group of people. He said, look, and think about this. What you plant, you harvest. So if you plant a watermelon seed, let's just review for city people, right? Let's, you plant a watermelon seed, you get a watermelon. It's the same thing that you plant. It's not just that. It's not a one-to-one -one ratio. You don't plant a watermelon seed and get a watermelon. You get that and more. You get the same thing you plant and more. You get a vine full of watermelons. And within each watermelon, there are hundreds of seeds. So if you plant a single corn seed, right, then you will get eventually a field of corn. If you plant a cotton seed, over time it produces and, pro and reproduces and reproduces, you're going to need a cotton gin. So Paul's saying, look, 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 it, you can count on this. You can depend on this. This is like physics, Matt. It's physics. This is agriculture. What you plant, you will harvest. Every decision has a price tag. Every single one of your decisions has a price tag. I had a professor in graduate school. He said, life is this making choices, and living with the consequences. Well, agriculture says the same thing. 
What you plant, you'll harvest. Physics says the same thing. Look, it, he says for the bad and for the good. Let's look at the bad first. Wait, we can harvest bad. Verse 8 says, the one who sows of the flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. Right? So the flesh in this, in, in this book, flesh, the passions. You live by the passions, you'll die by the passions. You live by you know, moralism, you'll die by moralism. Your life, your relationships are an expression of planting this flesh and then harvesting this flesh. This flesh might be right hedonistic pursuits of whatever makes you feel good or this moralism, moralistic judgmentalism that you'll have on yourself and other people. The marriage ministry, we're famous for our marriage ministry here. If I had to say what it is in a nutshell, it's older people asking younger people, whatever that might be, you know, what are you planting? You know you'll harvest that same thing, right? So in premarital counseling, they, uh, the counselors will sit down with a young couple that are thinking about getting married and say, well, tell me about your life, your values, your background, that sort of thing. And they try to listen for seeds that are weeds. You know, your, your greed or materialism, you have to pull that or it will, it will produce the same and more. And now's the easiest time to pull that weed as you'll ever have in the rest of your life. Your, right, your selfish vanity, your egocentricity, it's going to wreck your marriage. So let's talk about that. And you can choose to or not, but it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. Right? Ignorance of the law or belief in the laws don't matter. In marriage counseling, right, when you get married, marriage, you know, it has seasons. And usually they start off nicely. And sometimes, again, if you're over here in these parallel paths of the flesh, whether it's your passions or um, obligations, the marriage can go quite well at the beginning because you're getting what you want. My physical pleasures or whatever these pleasures I might want are getting met. Thank you. You're doing a good job. And then, you know, my expectations for you are getting met somewhat. And, and it's so this marriage is going up because there's seasons of marriage. And then it kind of stalls. And sometimes it plateaus. And then it starts going down. And the, here's the reason why. There are seasons in marriage, right? Some, some seasons are harder than others, but I'll tell you, there is a season called harvest. And what you plant in the early years, you harvest at year five to seven, and that's when things kind of get a little bit rocky. And then you can go to, like, re-engage our ministry at, on Monday nights, for example, or some of our counselors that we'll have for you, and they're going to ask you this. What did you plant, and what did you think you were going to harvest? Did you think that you could... Again, be a selfish, self-centered person and not harvest something that's regrettable? That's just the way it works. It's physics. It's the physics of marriage. Your spiritual life can be um, understood by looking at your physical life. And if you plant these selfish seeds, you will harvest disunity and anger. Right? So in parenting, parenting is kind of the same way. What you plant, you harvest. I mean, we even have a figure of speech, don't we? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? I mean, there it is. It's an agricultural expression of, you know, the psyche or of our soul. The, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. What tree did you fall from? You, you fell from a tree. You realize you are the fruit of someone else's seed that was planted. You can't ignore that. You can't deny it. It won't go away. That's the way it works. So if you are... Uh, the apple that fell close to the tree and that tree is an angry parent. Oh, you're going to be an angry parent. Of course you are. 
Why do you think ignoring it would make it any different, right? You, have, you, can, right? you, can, you cannot change what you won't confront. And that's how it happens generational, generation, generational problems is because it's, it's just harvesting, wait, not more of the same, right? It's the same kind of anger, but just kind of more or expressed in different ways. That's what happens, right? This is why Robert Louis, right, Robert Louis Stevenson's write this. Everybody, sooner or late, will sit down to a banquet of consequences. Oh, we're all going to that banquet. Everybody, sooner or late, will sit down to a banquet of consequences. We're all going to that banquet. Look, the one who plants of the flesh will from that flesh reap corruption. Every decision has a price tag. Every decision has a price tag. And you don't set that price tag. Physics does. Nature does. So you don't pay the price for obedience, Paul's saying. You pay the price for disobedience. You don't pay the price for courage. You pay the price for running in fear of the things that you won't confront. You don't pay the price for, like, discipline, right, or diligence. You pay the price for quitting all the time and not having much to show for your life. You don't pay the price for holiness. You pay the price for living by the flesh. So God, he he won't be mocked. No one's going to sneer at him. He cannot let you get away with planting thorny weeds and then allow you to harvest, right, juicy and succulent oranges or strawberries because then you'd keep doing it and the laws of nature would be violated so if you're if you're a lazy person you'll you'll you will sow from that flesh corruption look what again let's look at physics again or harvesting look at proverbs 24 it's all over the bible i want to show you every i'm sorry next passage proverbs 20 yeah a slugger does not plow, a slugger who does not plow in, in season, uh, so at harvest time he looks and he finds nothing. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're not farmers, but that expresses our lives relationally. That expresses our lives, you know, in, in the workplace. I mean, what do, you, what do you call a lazy farmer? There's a word for it. Starving. Right? I mean, right? I won't do it this season. Okay. So you'll starve next season. The wrath of God? No. No, he doesn't have to. There's no wrath of God in this. This is just like my dad would say, you know, physics. So look, Paul is saying this. If you have contempt for God, maybe, you know, there's some maybe people in his audience and says, you know, if you don't fear God, then fear physics. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Fear, if you can't fear God, then you fear agriculture. What you plant, you will harvest the same and more. If you won't fear God, then fear just basic figure of speech. Just listen to the people out there. They'll say what goes around comes around. Why do we know that? Because we see it all the time. If you can't fear Father God, then you had better fear Mother Nature. She rules with neither contempt, right, uh, nor mercy as she distributes poetic justice to her wild kingdom. He'll just leave you to her. That's the first part. But listen, it's not all bad that he talks about. This agricultural metaphor that he uses that helps us understand the spiritual world, Paul is saying, wait, 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 okay, I hope. These people are, are fearful. 
and expecting certain consequences that are, that are absolutely going to happen. But you, over here, he says this, the second part of verse 8. Look what he says. But the one who sows to the Spirit from, right, shall from that same Spirit reap eternal life. You plant from the Spirit, you get the Spirit, what? And more. Same, right? Same fruit. You plant and you get that likeness and more. So in marriage, if you have a marriage that's a grace-based marriage, use the same illustrations as before, it's a grace-based marriage, and you go into it not for yourself but for your mate, and you say, you know, how can I serve you? Or um, how can I be part of God and God's ambition to conform you to his image? That we're, I want to play a part in making that a reality in this lifetime. What, in reference to last week, what burdens that you have can I carry? And, and how can I strengthen your shoulders, you know, to carry a heavier load? How can I do that? It, when you plant grace-based attributes in a marriage, you get that and more. If you're in a relationship with someone and you keep going back and forth with each other, trying to be used by God to do God's will in that person's life, to make them what God envisions them to be, and you do that for a year, and then five years, and then 10, and then 30, you plant an apple seed in those early years. In 30 years, you don't have a tree, friends. You have an orchard. It is, it is, this is, that's, the, that's the law of agriculture. You have the same thing and more, and it's for you and other people to enjoy. That's what he's promising us. Come on, hang in there, keep doing it. It's the laws of physics. It's the laws of, of agriculture, of nature. And so grace-based parenting, you go, you're looking at each individual child, and you're saying, you know what, how can I serve you? How can I be part of, of God's transforming you into what he envisions for you to become? You know, how can I bear some of your burdens? How can I strengthen your shoulders to carry a heavier load? That's what grace-based parenting looks like. So um, instead of laziness, let's look at generosity. Again, look how it's a cause effect. Look how it's you get that plus more. In generosity, Jesus says this. Look, if you just forgive people, then you'll be forgiven and more. If you're generous, right, if you give, it will be given to you. How? In good measure, pressed down, shaken, running over, spilling into your lap. <laughs> Paul's just, he's just trying to help us remember these things so that we continue in these things. You don't pay the price for obedience, friends. Paul's saying is you're rewarded for that. There's, there's no price to pay for being courageous. You, you get to live free from fear. Who would you be if you were not afraid? Right? You, you, there's no price being paid for diligence. You have results. You have a, a bountiful life. You don't pay the price for righteousness. Guys, you hear the voice of God. Paul's saying there's a cause effect here. You can, if, and if you, look, if you can't trust God in times of difficulty, when the winters are long and hard and dark, you, he's saying, listen, if you can't trust God, Trust physics. <laughs> look at the universe. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Look, just look at agriculture. Look at horticulture. You plant a seed. From that seed, you harvest that same fruit and more. If you can't trust God in times of doubt, then just trust, you know, what people say in the hallways of, 
of businesses and schools. What goes around comes around. It's coming around. It's coming around. But Paul warns us now, he's going to say, the con- it's contingent, the blessing part. This pe- these people over here, he's saying, look, farming's not easy. He says, look, look what he says in, at verse 9. He says, you don't grow weary. He said, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap. That's when we harvest, right, if we do not grow weary. Look at the two words I've underlined, or two phrases. You do not, do not lose heart and do not grow weary. Do not lose heart is where we get our word, the Greek word, translates to our word coward. Losing heart means you're just becoming cowardly. You're, I mean, you're, you don't want to face stuff anymore. And then, and then do not grow weary is, is not so much as like getting, you know, a one-punch knockdown, but it's, it's the idea of just being worn down, right? Just this grind of life that's sifting you. And this might be the first time that these two words are put together because you might know the, the, the expression that fatigue makes cowards out of all of us. You ever heard that? Because it's true. Fatigue will make cowards out of all of us. And Paul's saying, look, don't let weariness make you a coward. Do not, do not grow, lose heart in doing good. Don't let that fatigue do that. Those two imperatives are, they're imperatives. So Paul's yelling at us. He's calling us out. He's like rooting us on like a coach. Okay. Endurance. Farmers need endurance for the long, hard winters. You know what you call an impatient farmer? Starving. Right. Right. Don't dig it up. You know, it looks like a fake death. It, it, it's not real. And see, what happens is, is people that grow weary of doing good, they'll, they'll dig up righteous seeds right before they're, they're blooming, right before it's, things start happening. And, you know, there's a saying in agriculture, the roots grow deepest when it's dry. And that's sometimes when God is really causing you to grow deeper in your relationship with him. And those are the times when people have a tendency because they grow weary and become cowardly, and they dig up what they've done. Listen, in the history of America, there has never been a time where there have been so many, and statistically so many, men and women in what's called midlife, 50 to 60 years old. It's a very delicate and dangerous time in a person's existence because they're starting to realize that they will die and be forgotten very soon. And there's consequences for that. I mean, since there's so many people in that age group, I mean, our whole... Not a whole, but much of our economy is built around it. Look at, um, look at the auto industry. I mean, isn't it funny that uh, Ford and Chevy, for example, are, are remaking the Camaro and the Mustang to look exactly like it did in 69 through 72 or whatever when my age group, okay, this is my group, my age group wish they had those. We couldn't afford them, and so they're going to remake them for us because we have money now. And, and even Cadillac, it used to be a luxury car, and now it's these rocket ships that are so quiet because I want to listen to my classic rock, you know, the best of the Eagles or Fleetwood Mac as I'm going down the highway. And glass packs, oh, my ears are sensitive. I can't stand that. So that look what's happened. And here's, okay, it makes sense strategically if you want to sell things, right? Because what happens to a person's life in, in their midlife is they say this. When's it my turn? When's it my turn? I'm, I'm tired. See, I'm growing weary. I'm losing heart. And I just want to, I'm not saying those things are bad. They're actually pretty cheap, you know, compared to what you can do. And what we're seeing now is in spectacular form in, in more times than we, 
than ever before, people tearing up 30 years of righteous planting and in a few moments ruining the crop, burning it down. And it's it's, again, it's because of this passage, verse verse, uh, 9 here, because they've grown weary of doing good. The the fatigue has made them cowards. And so they're losing their family and their, their, their children and their marriage or sometimes their careers because of this. See, so it's a, real, it's a real threat. You have to have endurance. So the application here, the next verse will help us with an application. As many, verse 10 has many applications, but we're going to connect them to the previous three verses. So then, while you have an opportunity, while we have an opportunity, let's do, let's, let's do good to all men, you know, especially how fragile things are, right? Especially those who are in the household of faith. How, how do we apply, how do we do good things to one another in the household of faith. We seek out farmers amongst us, people that understand physics, the people that understand these laws of agriculture, that ignorance of these things are costly. We, 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 we go to people, and, we, and for people over here, these older people, 10 years older, 20, 30, you know, our, our whole church is structured around this sentence, right? That you go to people, and, and these people say, you have to be warned, you will be found out, right? And these people over, to these people over here, they're telling them, you'll harvest great things if you plant grace. But you have to, lead, you have to you know, not grow cowardly. You have to find an honest farmer. You know, they're all over this church, right? We've, again, like I said, we've structured the church around it. Most of our adult communities, you know, our adult Sunday school classes, our midweek Bible studies, all the things that we do around here is to get exposure. But listen, you don't have to... I mean, here's what you can do, is when you start realizing you're pulling up a lot of weeds of selfishness, whether it's moralism or, you know, just simple, simple pleasures, and you're getting tired of that, look for somebody in the auditorium, watch them walk in when no one's watching, right? Look how they look at their mate, because there's people here with silver hair, right? And, and they've been married for over 10, 20, or over 20 and 30 years, and yet they look at each other like they're newlyweds. Just go introduce yourself and say... I need someone to tell me the truth about physics, about farming. I need you to tell me honestly, what are the weeds that I carry with me all the time, thinking that I'm going to get a harvest of beautiful, luscious fruit? How am I deceiving myself? Will you give me courage to face the things that I need to confront? And then, again, some people, they need to hear from these old farmers, older people, in our congregation, just needs to be 10 years older than you, okay? They just need to look at you and encourage you. It's a winter. It's a long winter. It's a long, cold, dark winter, yes. But it's a fake death. Spring is coming. A resurrection is going to happen. If you sow the Spirit from the same Spirit, you will reap eternal life. If you do not grow weary in doing good, Paul's saying this. He's ending his book like this. His book is saturated with the gospel, with the grace of God. What you began by grace, continue with grace. He says this. Don't think that you can fool God. Don't think that you can have contempt towards God. You will reap what you sow. If you you plant death, you will harvest death. But if you sow grace, if you sow the gospel, you will harvest the gospel. The same and more. 
Every decision has a price tag, he says. Every decision has a price tag. They've already been set. One writer put it this way. He was trans- one translation. I-, I love his translation. He says, don't be misled. <laughs> no one makes a fool out of God. What a person plants, oh, that person's going to harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God himself, they'll harvest a crop of weeds. All who have the show for his life is weeds. But the one who responds to God, the one who lets God's spirit do growth and, and work in him, that harvest will be a crop of real life, eternal life. This book, I love studying this book with you guys. This book needs to be the archetype of the way we do ministry here, friends. It is written on the side of our building that we plant grace and then we harvest grace, the same grace and more. We want to be known as a church for people outside the church and for people that go to other churches that aren't grace-centered. They're get-you-busy-in-moralism. We want to be a church that gets grace and gives grace. You, you see what freedom comes when the love of God is the, is the single thing that fuels you and motivates you. Let's be that church together, okay? That's our hope for this series. Let's pray to that end. Dear Lord Jesus, these, uh, these 10 weeks of trying to understand the depths of eternity have been difficult but inspirational. And it is my hope, Lord, that we'd be, we would live up to our name, that we would be a grace church, that we would understand that what we begin in the Spirit, we will perf- that you will perfect in the Spirit. What you began with grace, you will perfect with grace. And we confess self-righteous moralism or desires of uh, passionate expressions that enslave us. But, Lord, that is not who we were made to be. We were made to be so much more in the image of your Son. Lord, would you help us comprehend the reception of grace and the giving of grace? Would you give us someone in our life that would give us this power of forgiveness and love so that we might understand what it's like to receive it from you in a new way? And that in that, we would give that to other people and we would just, it, like, like, uh, like a positive infectious disease, we would be a, a source of your grace. Nothing but grace. From Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone. Let us be that, Lord, for you. I think that's your hope for our church. Let us be that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.